0: Hello and welcome to The Vinyl Approach, episode 15. I'm Tom Wilmoth. I've been publishing my thoughts on music and have been involved with radio since the early 1970s. I call myself a collector of popular and unpopular music. Let's talk terminology. An artist's canon is everything the artist has created and released to the public. That is, their complete works. For authors, it's all the writer's published works. For painters, it's their entire body of visual creations. For musicians, a canon is made up of all the music they have officially released. Increasingly, musicians' canons are augmented by additional recordings. Sometimes, this occurs years after a canon seems to have stabilized, with no new inclusions likely. I'll use the Beatles as a quick example. When the group broke up in 1970, All the recordings they had released constituted their canon, music created, recorded, and issued by the Beatles. Because they had split up, there seemed little likelihood of additions to their canon. And it did remain unchanged until 1977, when Capitol Records put out The Beatles Live at the Hollywood Bowl. The album's music was performed by the group who approved of its release. This concert album was followed by CDs of recordings made from the BBC radio broadcasts, and then from numerous studio and live tracks in their anthology series. All of these performances by the group are now considered part of the Beatles' official canon of recordings. Today's vinyl approach discusses music added to an artist's existing canon. Box sets are great for fans and collectors. Bear Family Records of Germany specializes in releasing box sets of an artist's complete work, their entire canon. Bear Family's box set of Jimmy Rogers, called The Singing Breakman, is a six-CD set of every recording that Rogers made. This box contains all of Rogers' extant recordings for Victor Records, the only label he ever recorded for. If you own this Bear Family box, there are no other recordings to purchase. This is his complete canon. A devotee may wish to want to own other Jimmy Rogers items, such as copies of his original 78 RPM records, but as for his music, this box set has it all. Rogers' brief recording career for one label is a relatively simple matter to document. Or so it would seem. But even here things get murky. The Singing brakeman box contains all of Rogers' released recordings, but it also includes a variety of previously unreleased alternate takes, These are different versions of the same songs that were officially released, but the performances were deemed not as good as the version that was put onto the record. These recordings sat in the record company's vault until this Bear Family box set came out in 1992. The canon of Jimmy Rogers expanded at that time with the release of these alternate takes. And, make no mistake, we are glad to have them and to be able to hear them. But this Jimmy Rogers box set also contains some material that is distracting. Included here are versions of the original recordings that were overdubbed with additional instruments, 20 years after Rogers' death. Even though they were altered under the eye of the great Chet Atkins, how to approach this mutation of the original work gets tricky. Six of these misguided overdubbed songs were released in the mid-1950s, then largely forgotten. They surface again on this Singing Brakeman set, but nobody plays them. Still, these altered works must be considered canon, making up an unfortunate subset of Roger's actual body of work. I said that this Jimmy Rogers box contained all of the extant or existing recordings by this artist. While that's true, we also know that one of Roger's recordings was accidentally destroyed. It once existed, we're sure of it, but there is no known copy of it now. We'll talk more about overdubs and lost recordings another time. The Carter Family also has a box set released by Bear Family. It's called In the Shadow of Clinch Mountain. This 12-CD set includes every recording released by the original Carter Family. It is comprehensive in scope, and as all things Bear Family, is successful in its goal of presenting the complete studio work of an artist. Like the Jimmy Rogers Singing Breakman set, In the Shadow of Clinch Mountain appears to be the final word in presenting the complete canon of the original Carter Family. But wait, in the late 1990s, our Hooley Records issued three CDs by the Carter family called On Border Radio. These songs were recorded by the Carters specifically for one-time radio broadcast on what are called transcription discs. These radio performance records were never issued to the public and are now highly sought after. The Carter family's transcription disc material is interesting on a variety of levels. Listening to the performers interact as they introduce numbers, for example, and hearing different versions of their well-known songs. But the question today is, should these three CDs of recordings intended for radio broadcast be considered part of the group's official canon? They have now been released on a legitimate record label, but were not originally designed for distribution to the public. Also, some of the recordings include performers other than the original trio. As interesting and as legitimate as some of these performances may be, whether these radio recordings should be accepted as part of the Carter family canon is a topic for debate, and radio transcription discs will also be the subject of a future Vinyl Approach episode. By the way, I keep stressing the original Carter family because the name Carter family would later be used by various members of the family long after A.P. Carter had died. The later recordings are not part of the original group's canon. The Carter family must include A.P. Carter in some capacity. But even that straightforward statement gets tricky. The discussion of what constitutes an artist's canon became more difficult to define a couple of decades ago because of the very thing that I discussed before, the box set. The Bear Family label is adamant about releasing what has already been issued by an artist, but most box sets for recent performers feature previously unreleased bonus tracks as an enticement for fans to purchase the box. These bonus track recordings were not included on any of the artist's original albums. Maybe they were songs that didn't make it onto an album, or maybe they were live recordings. There are many sources for bonus tracks. One of the first box sets released of an active performer's work was in 1988 with Eric Clapton's Crossroads, a six-record, or four-CD set. Clapton's Crossroads box had a few previously unreleased tracks, but was primarily a well-presented overview of his recording career to that point. After unexpectedly high sales for this Eric Clapton release, many performers curated box sets of their own material. The results varied. But the point of today's podcast is, how does this expanded material impact on a performer's official canon? In 1991, Aerosmith issued a three-CD set called Pandora's Box that includes the band's hits and key album tracks. It also features two songs from a Cincinnati radio broadcast from early in their career, in 1971, before the release of their first album. I find the two songs from the radio broadcast to be some of the best material on this Aerosmith box, But, as with the Carter family, is this radio material canon? And maybe more importantly, does it matter? One major distinction about the recordings made for radio broadcast by Aerosmith and by the Carter family, Aerosmith chose to release their two songs. The three members of the Carter family were dead by the time Arhuli's On Border radio CDs were issued. Surviving family members were consulted, but the performers themselves had no say in the matter. The Carter family and Aerosmith. What next? Well, let's take a look at Barry Manilow. His box set is called The Complete Collection, and then some. But the remarkable thing about this 1992 retrospective is how few of Manilow's hit singles are included on these four CDs. Unreleased demos, live recordings, newly recorded material, these things are represented in abundance, but a hits collection it ain't. The material included here shows an artist who assumes that anyone who would purchase a box set of four CDs and one videotape must already own the performer's hits. This is one approach to creating a box set, and a valid one. But if you take this stance, then don't name your set the complete collection. It implies the inclusion of well-known songs. Sorry, Barry. Another example of this is the Kingston Trio. Their four-CD Capital Years box is replete with interesting live and unreleased material, but it is not the place to go to find their familiar hits. In an inverse situation, we have George Strait. On King George's 4 CD box Straight Out of the Box, the singer methodically offers a chronological playlist of hit after hit after hit. The box does include five previously unreleased songs and a few album tracks, but they are incidental. The Motherlode is Straight's songs that were prominent on country music radio starting in the 1980s. However, there is one hit missing. That would not be so surprising, except that this set is so dogmatic in offering every hit single in the order that it hit the chart. But the tune called Overnight Success is not found here. It's my thought that George simply didn't like this tune and chose not to include it. Or maybe the reasons are more complicated. But Straight likely knew that this comprehensive box of his material would be the go-to collection for fans, probably replacing their individual records and CDs. I think this is an example of an artist trying to delete something from his canon. Overnight Success can be found on some of his other hit packages, but Straight Out of the Box is clearly the artist's sanctioned collection of his work, and it's not on there. But to return from deletion to inclusion, it's not just the multi-disc box sets that offer bonus material for the fan. Columbia Records frequently offers additional songs from a session that had not been on the original album. Willie Nelson's Red-Headed Stranger and Rodney Crowell's Diamonds and Dirt both come to mind. Each includes studio outtakes of previously unheard songs, songs recorded for but not used on the album. Willie's Troublemaker CD adds a brief live set from Texas with concert versions of some of the songs found on the Troublemaker album. Willie's added live set and Crowell's bonus studio songs are good, and the liner notes for both CDs make it clear that each artist has no problem with the additional tracks being issued. Bob Dylan once told an interviewer that there are two reasons why one of his songs doesn't make it onto a new release. Either there is not enough room on the album, or he didn't think the recording was good enough. Many have disagreed with some of Bob's choices for song exclusion, but that's his rationale. Dylan's individual Columbia CDs of his older releases contained no bonus tracks. Each CD issued the album in its original form. Sometimes the artwork for the CD differed from the albums, but the music was presented without added material. Either Bob wanted the album presented in its original form, or he was saving the unreleased material for his bootleg series of box sets. Maybe both. Columbia is not the only major label to entice old fans with newly released tracks, RCA's reissues of their Jefferson Airplane catalog include Surrealistic Pillow with five studio outtakes. The Volunteers CD adds a five-song concert set recorded at the Fillmore East in the fall of 1969, shortly before the original lineup dissolved. I am of two minds concerning outtakes and extra songs added to the conclusion of an existing album's music. The bonus tracks do provide some additional songs, and the material previously left off the record is sometimes worthwhile, as are the live recordings. But for some CDs, the bonus material disrupts the balance and flow of the originally released album. For a lot of albums, this flow doesn't matter. But for some, it does. Is it like drawing a mustache onto the Mona Lisa? Not exactly, but these bonus tracks do alter the musician's original vision, if we consider an album in such a manner. And I do. The jazz label Blue Note Records has a unique approach, but unique doesn't necessarily mean better. The label frequently includes alternate takes of selections from one of their label's existing albums, but Blue Note has a curious way of adding these tracks. Instead of placing the alternate takes at the end of the album's original tracking order, they place the alternate take immediately after the released version of the tune. This means that the album's original running order is altered and, more frustrating, the listener is forced to hear one number twice in a row, sometimes more, that or get up and skip ahead on the CD player, and that seems like a lot of work. All of the newly released material described today has entered the canon. The live material of Willie's, the radio recordings of Aerosmith and the Carter family, and the studio outtakes from the Jimmy Rogers box and the Blue Note label. Many fans are interested in having these extras. Some buy CDs of albums they already own just to get the bonus material. Record companies count on it. Even so, some fans are very devoted to an artist, yet have little interest in these CD extras. My friend Tim is an electric bassist and a huge fan of the group King Crimson. He follows band leader Robert Fripp's ongoing commentary about Crimson Tours, and he has watched each of Fripp's and his wife Tanya's weekly pandemic video diary entries. Tim closely tracks new King Crimson items that are posted by Fripp, kindly alerting me to ones he thinks I would have interest in. One such post of the song Islands was a live recording taken from a concert that he and I attended in Milwaukee. Tim is a fan of King Crimson. So am I, but for some reason my excitement about a recording is muted until the work is available in tangible form. Until it is released by a record company and a hard copy, I may love the music and play the music, but until it is released in a physical format, I don't consider it to be an officially sanctioned material piece, or what I have today been calling canon. Long before the internet existed, another friend of mine told me, you don't collect music, you collect CDs. An interesting thought, but the reason I collect CDs is because of the music they contain. And I realize that by discussing CDs today, I am speaking about an outdated technology. But I still play CDs, and I still view them as a tangible document concerning an artist's music. I can hold it in my hand. And certainly Robert Fripp, while providing downloads, also makes King Crimson music available for people like me to hold in our hands. In addition to the group's 13 original studio releases, he has put out numerous compilations drawn from these albums. Also, Fripp was early in releasing a box set of concert material. The Great Deceiver is a four-CD collection of live recordings by King Crimson. It has a narrow focus. All of the recordings in this box are taken from the band's tour of 1973 and 74. But this box set of four CDs was just a warm-up. In more recent years, Fripp has released a set called Sailor's Tales, which covers his band's musical history from 1970 to 1972. To document the music of these three years, the box set contains 27 discs of audio material. It is the seventh such box set in this King Crimson series, none of which has fewer than 16 discs. The Great Deceiver box of 1992, once called Overkill at four CDs, now looks a bit anemic. In 2014, it was expanded to 27 discs for a Crimson box set called Starless. I find such obsessiveness fascinating, and for those interested, it's great that this trove of material is available. Without a doubt, the most interested fan of King Crimson is Robert Fripp, and one senses that these box sets are ultimately designed for an audience of one, himself. But back to my friend Tim, a more dedicated Crimson fan than I, someone who has King Crimson album artwork tattooed onto his body. But he has no desire to own the box sets I am describing. His focus remains with the original albums, the way Fripp first released them to the public. For Tim, these recordings are the worthwhile King Crimson texts. All that comes after is of only marginal interest to him. In some ways, I envy Tim's focus, but I fail to grasp it. Doesn't he want to hear as much as possible by this band? When I described to my adult son Tim's King Crimson obsession, but how it did not include box sets, he observed with amusement that I was not angry about Tim's approach to fandom, but that I was completely confounded by it. And that sums it up. I do respect Tim's focus. Certainly it saves him a lot of money. Speaking of which, regardless of a fan's interest, the expense of this ongoing King Crimson series has kept most fans from hearing the contents of these massive box sets. Even so, since Robert Fripp has sanctioned, approved, and released these boxes, the music in each set must now be considered part of the band's canon. Some people use other words to describe the sets. My wife recently asked me, is there any repetition on those boxes? There is, and plenty of it. Fripp even comments about duplicate material in his Notes to the Great Deceiver, explaining that the inclusion of multiple recordings of the same song was to be expected because the band usually played the same set each night of that tour. But to answer my wife's question, the multi-disc Starless set includes 24 recordings of King Crimson's song Exiles, 29 of Lament, and 35 performances of The Night Watch. But even with repetition, differences emerge. In his liner notes to another box, Fripp writes of his amazement at hearing the arrangement that King Crimson played of their song 21st Century Schizoid Man some decades back. Fripp says he doesn't recall the arrangement, and is sure that the band never played it that way before or since, even on that same tour. Oral documentation demonstrates performance anomalies, but this assumes that the listener is a big enough fan to care about such things. As my family will tell you, I like to talk about box sets. I like to buy box sets, and I like to listen to box sets. I make this last distinction because my friend Keith buys a lot of box sets, he just never plays them. For Keith, owning them is enough. Record collectors, we are a strange lot. This has been The Vinyl Approach. I'm Tom Wilmeth, and if you are interested in reading more of my opinions about music, I have published a book called Sound Bites a lifetime of listening. Soundbite is available on Amazon. A quick reminder that each of these episodes has an accompanying song list on Spotify. Oh, and one last note, that 27-disc set of Starless I mentioned? The official King Crimson site says that that box is sold out. Someone is still buying CDs. This has been The Vinyl Approach, and I'll see you next time.